This is a fucking circus. And they're transparent about being a circus. And man, oh man, the best time ever was when Greenspan and his whole crew didn't even announce they were having a meeting. That's when markets were real. There was no announcement that there was an FOMC meeting. And all of a sudden they came out and said, that's it, we're changing rates. And the market adjusted and people got absolutely destroyed because that's the way markets are supposed to work. But we have an FOMC that's gonna be transparent and it's gonna walk everyone down the road and hold their hand and everyone's a little cupcake and everyone will be just fine. It's an absolute circus act. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Hello, folks, and welcome into the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. If you're new to this show, welcome. Josh and myself, Dan, work together as career firefighter paramedics, and we have a mutual passion for exploring finance, investing, macroeconomics, and Bitcoin. We've been privileged on this show to chat with some of the biggest names in those aforementioned spaces, and this week is no different. Man, do we have a special episode for you today as we are joined by both Preston Pish and Greg Foss. As we are sure is the case for many of our listeners, these two gentlemen have had a significant impact on the way we view markets and the global economy. This was a long conversation. We kept these two up way past their bedtime, so we've decided to split this into two episodes. This is the first half, and then the second half will come out next week. In this first hour, we dive into a number of subjects, including the current predicament the Fed finds themselves in, the uniqueness of the way markets have sold off in the beginning of 2022, inflation and its impact on fixed income, Bitcoin volatility, how long our current economic system can hold together, and more. You can stay up on what both these great minds are thinking and saying by following them on Twitter. Preston Pish is at Preston Pish, and Greg Foss is at Foss Greg Foss. We are also active on Twitter at Blue underscore Collar BTC. Last but certainly not least, we are pleased to announce that BCB Podcast is now brought to you by the one, the only, CoinKite. Makers of the cold card, the open dime, the block clock, and a plethora of other plebworthy hardware and merchandise. If you're interested in sleeping like a freaking baby with your Bitcoin secured behind military-grade Bitcoin security hardware fit for generational storage and protection, look no further. The two of us trust our stack in the hands of the cold card wallet, and we can attest it's fit for Bitcoin beginner all the way up to the most advanced of users. Simply put, this is the best cold storage device in existence. CoinKite also has a number of new products on the horizon, including the Tap Signer, the Sats Card, and a new Cold Card MK4. Access all CoinKite products at CoinKite.com and be sure to use promo code BCB, that's promo code BCB, for 5% off purchases. All right, now without further ado, here's our convo with Greg Foss and Preston Pish. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Preston, Greg, welcome back on the BCB podcast. Couple repeat guests. Boss, this is take three for you. 
Pish, this is your second time on the show, and we are tickled pink to have the two of you here together. Thanks for spending the evening with us. Great to be here, guys. Yeah, very, very excited. I enjoy uh, spending time with both of you, but also with Preston. Good to, good to see you guys this new year. You know, Good to see you, Craig. Six months ago, Dan and I would have never in our wildest dreams believed we'd be sitting here talking to the two of you guys. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty yeah, cool. It's pretty cool. I feel the same way talking to you guys. So, Original vision behind this discussion was to focus on pensions, institutional funds, bond allocations, Bitcoin hedge in those funds. And we do plan to get there. Um, but there is a lot of shit going on in the markets right now. So I think we'll just start open-ended riffing on everybody's thoughts on what the flip is happening out there in virtually every market in existence in the globe. Anybody want to hop in here first with some broad thoughts? Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I would describe the past nine months as, uh, you know, a cartoon of Wiley Coyote kind of running off the cliff. His legs are still moving, right? And now all of a sudden he's, he's just now starting to fall. But I would tell you, he ran off the cliff like nine months ago when we started getting these negative interest rate spreads uh, from inflation. Um, it's just now taking the market this long to realize. And I think the market wasn't convinced whether this was like hanging around or this was transitory for that long. It's really kind of taken that reality this long to start setting in. And I think now everyone's starting to say, all right, uh, this isn't getting solved. In fact, it might actually be getting worse. And, um, you know, with the last inflation print hitting 7%, um, I think that was kind of the moment in time where like, oh my God, uh, this isn't like a hundred basis point negative spread. This is like a 500 negative basis point spread. And this is a major issue because when you think about what the implications of this are, um, just look at the sheer size of the bond market and every single bond on the planet is negative uh, triple basis point numbers uh, for every single issuance in existence. And so when that's, when that's a fact, and it's been a fact for as long as it's been, and then you look at the sheer market cap size of, of what we're talking about, like this is a massive, massive issue in, in, in big deal. Because what you're effectively doing at that point, for anybody to buy these securities, and I'm using quotes in when I'm saying securities because there's nothing secure about it. Um, when you're asking somebody to buy that, what you're asking that person to do is to guarantee the loss of their buying power unless they can sell it to a bigger idiot. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. That's a point blank. That's all there is to it. Like anybody buying this is guaranteeing that they will lose their buying power if they hold it through the, the mature maturity date. Uh, unless they can find somebody else dumber to buy it from them at, a, at an even higher price than they paid. And they're paying ludicrously high prices for all these issuance. So that's what's going on in the market. The Wiley Coyote's starting to fall. He's been off the cliff for quite a while. He's starting to fall. And, uh, and then you got all the mouth-breathing equity people 
I'm, I'm, I'm saying this for, for Greg. I just, I, I said that just so I could see the smile on his face. Um, you got he all the mouth up. breathing equity people who are just like, you know, kind of like a little slower than all the fixed income folks. And, and they're looking at this and be like, oh, well, so yields are going higher. Does that mean that we should revalue all of our, all these securities at a, at a lower price? <laughs> right. And of course you should, especially when you're talking 500 basis points, just to get it parity of not losing any buying power, let alone a premium above that, that point. So, you know, I mean, for some of us, we, we've been looking at this and just kind of like raising our eyebrows like, okay, so when's reality going to set in? When's the Wiley Coyote going to start falling to the, to the earth? And it, it appears like that's now. And uh, what people should be expecting is just intense volatility. If you think you know what's going to happen from the open with it being 3% down and it closing 3% up, like if you think you can forecast that, um, you're totally kidding yourself and just lying to yourself. Because there's no way to forecast some of this stuff. This is this these movements are based on like five key people uttering ten words that happen to come out in some broadcast at eleven thirty-two in the afternoon, right? Yeah. So um, you know, just hang on. Like the mathematics are suggesting that there should be a massive correction, but you know what? I don't know if if some person's going to say something tomorrow that says they're going to drop 10 trillion into the market and the thing would go berserk. So you don't know what's going to happen. And anyone who says that they do, they're just lying to themselves. And um, it's based on, you know, a couple words that people might mutter. Yeah. They are redefining, they are re sorry to jump in, but they are redefining the definition of paper tomorrow. Okay. This is, this is exciting. <laughs> so, so the fed is going to redefine according to CNBC, the definition of taper, but let's, I didn't let's read take this. a step back. Yeah, yeah, this is crazy. But yeah, tell us about it. Let's, let's well, let's take a step back and start talking. You know, Preston nailed it. Um, you know, so essentially, bonds don't pay the freight, right? The last time CPI was at seven percent, the U.S. ten-year yielded nine percent. Okay, true. Why? Because you have to earn a return over the inflation rate in nominal terms so that your real return after you subtract out inflation is still positive. But now we have a 7% inflation rate and the U.S. 10-year yields under 2%. So Preston was saying you're losing 5% as a bond investor. What a clown show, right? Except. That's the world that the Fed has painted us into, and it leaves equities as the only traditional asset class that will allow pensions to possibly achieve their bogey of, let's say, 8% annualized, which means, and this is my prediction, tomorrow's redefining of the word taper is going to be absolutely hilarious from a pure grammatical uh, decomposition of what they're going to say. All right. This is going to be, this is going to be the attempt to keep the coyote as uh, Preston is saying, elevated in the air for longer. Um, the VIX is at 30%. Do you guys have a calculator handy? Any, anybody have a calculator yeah, handy? What is the square root of 252? And you're going to think I'm absolutely off my rocker here, but the square root of 252 is what? Greg, we're firemen. Go easy on us here. 
Hold on. I don't have it. I don't have a square root on the uh, iPhone calculator okay. here. I'm going to guess. I'm gonna he guess was using me. a cold card. It's not an actual <laughs> calculator. Well, here's the funny thing. Here's the cool thing. The reason I'm asking is because when you do, when you take the daily volatility of the VIX and you divide it by the square root of 252, that's the number of trading days in the uh, in the year, right? So you subtract 365 less 52 weeks of uh, two weekends a year, you get 252. You have to divide. You have to divide 252, the square root. You'll get the daily VIX. So when VIX is at 30%, I'm guesstimating, I, if I remember my 15. math correctly. 15.87. Okay, so what's 30 divided by 15? That's 2%. That is why you are getting 2% swings in the daily value of equities. Because 30 divided by the square root of 252 is what daily volatility of the VIX is. If you're telling me that you have comfort investing in an asset class called equities when the swings are predicted to be 2% daily? Man, oh man, you guys have lost the plot. And that's where we're at. We're at a place where fixed in income is supposed to yield 1.75% over 10 years. And the other asset class is swinging around like a dog's tail. Okay. This is not how markets work. And this is what the Fed has painted themselves into a corner. Pure mathematics, the square root of 252 is your daily volatility based on annualized volatility of 30%. Let's play a game. What if it goes to 60% annualized volatility on the VIX? Oh my God, all of a sudden the equity markets are swinging around by 4% daily, which is twice the return on the 10-year bond. Markets don't work that way, guys. This is what happens when the Fed paints themselves into a corner. And I know I shouldn't have brought out the square roots and all this mathematics at the very outset here, but I'm just telling you, markets are broken. The Fed has broken the markets, and now they're going to try and walk us to a place where we're comfortable with them being irresponsible buffoons. The Fed should not be run by a lawyer. Full stop. He does not understand mathematics, and he does not understand that you cannot redefine a word like taper. You can't taper a Ponzi. You cannot taper a Ponzi. There is no way to put lipstick on that pig, okay? Lawrence Lepard is totally right. And so is Max Kaiser, who one of the two of them coined that phrase. You cannot taper a Ponzi. Gentlemen, we need to start telling the truth. The coyote has run off the cliff. We can't afford to let the coyote crash because all pensions will crash with it. And hence, QE forever, in my opinion. QE forever. Let me ask a potentially dumb question here. So traditionally, when the equity markets get volatile like this, people generally run to bonds for safety. That's people see that traditionally as safety. But right now, anyone running the bonds, I mean, if there was a massive run to that, that should potentially that should lower rates even further, shouldn't it? Correct. With that cr Except with demand the running into it. This is the first time. This is the first time ever 
in the history of a 60-40 portfolio that the NASDAQ has been down more than 6% in a month. And bonds have also been down. I've noticed. So that's why I'm this asking This is the you. first time in the history. So the 60-40 pension portfolio that you guys are subscribed to. Risk parity. Has never experienced a month like the month of January wow. 2022. Your, your, and I'll just... Point this out, your dampening, which was your bonds, they also got carved. They got carved because bond prices go down when interest rates go up. And that's what we are experiencing right now. It's, uh, it's, it's not a comfortable position for those that run 60-40 portfolios. And Greg, because you're seeing this, which you haven't seen in the past, I'm interpreting that, and I think everybody else would be interpreting the the lack of bidding that you're seeing in the bond market is because people don't trust the currency. Your mm. investors, for the first time, are starting to wake up to this reality that uh, the reason it's not getting bid is because they know there's currency issues. So where are people going then, I guess, is the question that I'm asking. Because <laughs> if, if, if you've got the equity selling off and the bonds selling off, then where's the escape valve? I mean, obviously, it's not Bitcoin. Well, the, it's escape, down. the escape valve is the dollar. Right. So yeah. you're seeing the, the dollar index rise. Is, yeah, currency. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. But the dollar, when the dollar rises, emerging markets get crushed. So it crushed. comes back, it comes back and and haunts you because everyone's running to the safety of the dollar, but all emerging markets are losing, you know, they're losing their their purchasing power parity. So a strengthening dollar has always historically led to a cratering of emerging markets. So it's a vicious spiral. And this is why Luke Roman says stuff like, you know, you cannot have a strengthening U.S. dollar. The world economy can't handle it. Can't handle it based on a petrodollar system, cannot handle a strengthening U.S. dollar. So, uh, you know, again, I'll say it probably for the third time, the Fed has painted themselves into a corner. You ask the question, where is an alternative asset class? And this is why we're in this business. We're in this business to try and preach the benefits of an alternative asset class called Bitcoin. And everyone's going to say, oh, come on, that's impossible. Bitcoin's down 50% in the last three months. And I'll remind you, one half of all NASDAQ stocks are also down 50% in the last three months. Don't overthink this. Go ahead, Preston. I, I just want to throw this out there because I know Greg's an engineer and I'm, I'm trying to make him smile tonight. Uh, <laughs> so, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> so in engineering, uh, if you get a degree in mechanical and civil and whatnot, you have to take a class on vibrations. And in vibes, there's a thing called resonant frequency. Most people are oh, pretty yeah. familiar with this idea, right? And when you're 90, de 90 degrees out of phase of the input, you can create this situation of resonant frequency. Everyone's familiar with the Tacoma Narrows Bridge yeah. and how it was oscillating because the way it was constructed from a systematic standpoint and the, and the frequency and the velocity of the wind that was blowing through that valley, it, it created this, this resonant frequency for the bridge that it started violently creating these giant waves and everyone knows how that ended, which wasn't good. When we look at the current situation we're in with the markets, particularly the fixed income markets, 
and you're looking at a massive sell-off happening, especially with the 10-year and lower durations, the 10-year, the 30-year and the 20-year is actually getting bid, which tells you that the guys that are long duration are already preparing for um, you know, the, the uh, Fed capitulating on their position. The shorter duration stuff is selling off like crazy, very aggressively. And here's, here's the thing that's really amazing about all this. They haven't even come off of zero on the federal <laughs> funds rate. I know. They haven't, they haven't even done anything moved. yet. They haven't even done anything. And we're what, 5% five, five, uh, away from a full-blown textbook recession at this point? They're going to scream, uncle. Okay. You're five. So this is, this is what I find really inter- interesting. They are demonstrating how insanely impotent they are and how they've totally lost control of, of the whole situation, right? And the reason that you're seeing the, the short end of the curve selling off like crazy is because you're getting 7% interest, fl- interest prints, or not interest, but inflation. Uh, inflation prints at 7%, and these yields are less than 2%. And those are the highest yields in, in the world right now. If we go to here, I'll look up the numbers over in, over in the UK, the 10 year over there is 1.16%, right? If you go to Europe, their 10 year is at negative 0.08 <laughs> in nominal terms. We're not even talking real terms, right? So if you're getting 7% and that's the number they're telling you, and which we know is you know, way off the mark, because I think everybody at this point is subscribing to this idea that inflation is a vector, depending on who you are and what you buy, that's what your real inflation number is, not some basket people are telling you to look in. But let's just say it's 7%, even though we know it's higher. That's just a straight negative 7% if you're over in, over in Europe. Insane. Right? It's madness. It's crazy. Except that, you're, they accept that there's a chance that your pension fund owns an international bond fund, guys. And that international bond fund will have allocations to those negative yields, right? And this is where it comes home to roost for you guys, because every single pension fund is set up with silos of risk uh, risk buckets, and yes. they have to sit within those parameters. And so all that Preston and I would ever argue is you would never take a 40% bond allocation, just to say, let's say the 60-40 without considering the, the little... Uh, second uh, second level bond allocations, but a 40% bond allocation without considering international bonds, high yield bonds, state and local bonds, structured product, that 40%, you would never take that dollar for dollar and invest it in Bitcoin. But what we would argue is of that 40% bond allocation, it's far smarter to take, and I'm throw this mark, this level out for your pension guys, 3%. Of the 40%, take 3% and put it into Bitcoin. And your overall portfolio exposure will increase the return for the same level of risk. Or a different way of saying this is maintain the same level of return, but actually reduce risk. It's the perfect portfolio theory, an asset that is non-correlated to traditional assets. And you'll say, Foss, come on, Bitcoin has been correlated to the NASDAQ. And I'll say, yes, it has in the last six months. Why is that? And this is a subject I wanted to approach. 
everybody in the world is short Bitcoin right now. I want to explain that to you. Why? Well, first sir, of all, sir, not everybody. No, they are. No, <laughs> yeah. Preston, they are. Except, a, well, you know, okay, Preston how about this? Everybody, everybody with a lot of money to invest after subtracting out Preston, you're talking the Black <laughs> yeah. Rocks of the world with $10 trillion of assets to invest. Why are they short? Well, first of all, you got all these altcoin guys who have exposure to the digital asset space and the only true digital asset that they can short to hedge their beta, which is the market exposure to digital assets is Bitcoin. So all the altcoin guys, if they are hedging, they are short Bitcoin. Then there are some equity guys who have decided they're going to short Bitcoin because there's a correlation between equities and NASDAQ and Bitcoin. And then there's guys who own Bitcoin miners who want to play the delta between the Bitcoin mining stocks and Bitcoin. And then there's guys, even worse than that, who are out there and they own, they are like MicroStrategy and they own MicroStrategy stock and they're short Bitcoin against MicroStrategy or they're short Bitcoin against Coinbase or they're short Bitcoin against all these other digital wallets that trade publicly. So there's a ton of those people. That's fine. Markets, I have no problem with shorts. Shorts are an absolute necessary ingredient to any efficient market. But the real people that are shorted, as we've always said, are the people that don't own it. Anybody who owns zero Bitcoin is irresponsibly short. So you take all of this combined and you have this asset that has been trading in correlation with risk off assets because that's where the money is forcing it to trade. I cannot wait until people realize that that trade doesn't work anymore and that Bitcoin decouples from all the other asset classes. And if you are not long Bitcoin physically, and if you are short Bitcoin because you own zero, you have missed the best trade opportunity of your entire career. And this is where you need to push hard and push the buttons of your, your investment policy. Unfortunately, boys, Dan and Josh, it doesn't happen quickly, right? No, these no, ships do not turn quickly. I, I'm going to make the argument here that, uh, Preston, I think you actually are short Bitcoin. I see a television behind you. I think that's like a Peloton. <laughs> I think that's a Peloton in the background. You're sitting in yeah. a chair. That's like five grand worth all of stuff that to stuff sell and then we'll on talk. Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> You got me there. <laughs> Greg, I want to wind back to something you said before. Uh, how do you think that they are going to redefine the word taper? Explore oh, that a little bit more. Are they going to do a even, little... Uh, I, saw it as a, I saw it as a headline. I don't even want to go there. This is going to be... How about we rewind it and pretend uh, that we just wait until tomorrow? I'm actually scared about it because I'm scared that it'll be so much... Insert word here so that we can... We can, at the next meeting, we can strike out that word and pretend that we have done something, right? Like if you examine how people look through the FOMC minutes, they'll just take a sentence and they go, well, they blacklined this sentence. And you're supposed to feel comfortable about this. Like this is how they set policy by just blacklining a sentence. That's the way it works right now, guys. And they want it to be transparent. But all they show is what a 
circus act it is. This is a fucking circus. And they're transparent about being a circus. And man, oh man, the best time ever was when Greenspan and his whole crew didn't even announce they were having a meeting. That's when markets were real. There was no announcement that there was an FOMC meeting. And all of a sudden they came out and said, that's it. We're changing rates. And the market adjusted and people got absolutely destroyed because that's the way markets are supposed to work. But we have an FOMC that's going to be transparent and it's going to walk everyone down the road and hold their hand and everyone's a little cupcake and everyone will be just fine. <laughs> it's an absolute circus act. It's really, really, well, it's not free markets, as Preston would say. This is not free market pricing. This is hold your hand. Papa's going to, you know, comb your hair. Everything will be fine. That's not how you set free market pricing. And this goes back to something you hinted at earlier, Preston, and that's, I mean, it boggles my mind just how asinine it is, the way markets are dependent on decision, you know, a totally centralized decision-making body. We're sitting here with bated breath on what this one committee is going to decide. Another thought I had I wanted to throw out there to, to kind of zoom out for somebody that maybe is confused by some of this jargon because I was, I was explaining some of the dynamics to somebody at work yesterday and I was saying when they make these signals, right, when they suggest that they're going to taper and tighten, what it hints to me is just they're, they're not bringing them back to reality, but they're making a move towards market reality because we have all this artificiality in markets, right? You have an artificially cheap cost of capital, right? We have low interest rates that are manipulated. We've got all this artificial inserted liquidity, right? The QE, all the ballooning fiscal policy. And those two things equal completely artificial capital markets. So when they signal that they're going to unwind this fake money and allow rates to move even incrementally closer to reality, that's when balloons pop. And that's when, and so when you're, when you're sitting there last year during COVID, you're not all that financially literate and you're staring at your retirement account and you're wondering, why in the fuck is this thing at all-time highs during one of the biggest economic crises humanity has faced in the last century? And the answer is enormous amount of artificiality. And when they signal even a tiny bit that they're going to unwind that, markets have a conniption fit, which is what we're watching right now. And so they can get away, and we, we know this because we've seen it for more than a decade until only recently, they can get away with these activities for a very long period of time without the, inf the inflation, the, the basket they're telling you to look in, without it basically manifesting it inside that basket. Right. When that breaks and when that stops to work, and I was very much on the record in uh, March of 2020 when we had the, the collapse that that was going to be the turning point that and we were going to start to see inflation following that event. The rationale why is because at that point, when you've compressed all the yields all around the world, literally down to nothing, what you start to do is you start to break the supply chains and you start to break where economic calculations taking place between vendors in that, in that very robust and in-depth supply chain process that happens for all business all around the world. And so when you mutilate that and destroy it beyond comprehension and recognition, economic calculation cannot take place. Now, I would tell you that this has, this has taken place 
faster than I expected because back then I I did not expect COVID to to be um, so politicized with the people that would be incentivized to not work and all these other the, all these other policies that basically came out aggressively following that and have stayed in place and I would argue have even gotten more dramatic since that point in time and I think that that has added tremendous pressure to the to the economic calculation issues that were already there, but have only enhanced them. And I think at this point, trying to put any of that genie back in the bottle is not going to happen. I think it's going to actually accelerate itself and you're going to see um, these inflationary prints for the basket they're telling you to look in is is going to be sustained. You might get a little relief here or there, but I think in the, in the long run, it's going to get it's going to get worse and you're going to start to see double digit numbers and when that happens i mean i really think uh it's going to be really hard to keep the lid on all of this because if these if those inflation prints start going double digits these interest rates that you're seeing in the fixed income space are not going to be going higher i promise you that they're going to have to step in they're going to have to do yield curve control they're going to have to provide a backstop to that and they just cannot allow these rates to go up above like 3% on the on the 30 year here in the US. That is not going to happen. It can't happen. No. Everything blows up at that point. Having said all that, I re- I finished uh, Dalio's new book The Changing World Order not long ago. Dan's in the middle of it. One of the things that really resonated with me reading through that is just how each one of those collapses and those empires happened very similarly. It was the financial system that ended up basically going the rates went to zero and they printed money and they debased like very similar to what we're doing now. The thing yeah. that really struck, struck me reading that though is that the time frames in those books, generally it took a very long time for these things to play out. It's not like a really quick, you know, overnight moment. I think maybe Weimar Germany was a a bit of a outlier in that way. It happened in maybe 10 or 15 years there. If the two of you had to take your best shot at like what do you think a general time frame for this kind of thing is playing out from here? What do you what kind of a stab would you take at that? So I'll start. Um, what you've described is the reality of the world where cycles have become compressed, right? Um, you know, things happen quicker. Uh, things happen quicker purely because the world is more of a tinderbox, meaning you just, you know, there's a flame that, uh, that will ignite that tinderbox. And that tinderbox is as dry as it's ever been. So the explosion or the fire happens quickly. But each successive financial crisis is more severe and happens in shorter duration than the previous financial crisis. So I've been through four financial crises in my uh, in my career. Started in 1988 with the Latin American debt. 1998 was long-term capital management. 2007, 8, and 9 was the great financial crisis. And then the COVID crisis, each one was 10 years apart, but the severity of the downturn happened more quickly. So the 1988 Latin American debt crisis took about five years to play through the markets. Long-term capital market took a couple, uh, you know, less. Great financial crisis took three years and COVID took one year. The next big crisis the timing of which is your question, I hope is not soon, okay? I hope it isn't because we're not ready for it. The problem is 
that the depth of the or the 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 elevator down, if you will, will be more severe than even in the COVID crisis, in my opinion. So I won't give you a time. I'll just give you a severity, and the severity measured over a time frame will be quicker and more hurtful than the COVID crisis. And the perhaps a a best way for the United States to think about this is in terms of the next crisis, I'm worried that that's the one that finally does us in. And I hope it's not that, but the, the truth is it may be the one that does Canada in. And Canada, my home and native land, will fail 10 years before the USA fails. So the good news for you guys in the USA is Canada hasn't failed yet. So at least you guys have 10 more years. Okay. And as soon as Canada fails, then you can start thinking about your, uh, you know, short fuse there. But I, I'm an optimist on this show where I don't want any countries to fail G7 countries. And we want to put together a parallel system that will rescue this. And hopefully that's where we get to talking about the Bitcoin standard. But the truth is mathematics don't lie. And Canada, with a GDP of less importance than the state of California, with no ECB or other major major central bank backing, we only have our own Bank of Canada, Canada will be the first G7 nation to fail. And again, so I'm putting a 10-year time frame on as soon as Canada fails, 10 years later, the USA will fail. When does Canada fail? Man, I'm still a, pr- a proud Canadian. I hope that we can we can divert this, but Canada will fail within the next 10 years, which gives the USA 20 years, in my opinion. And therein is the, you know, that's pretty squishy, right? That's not much of a forecast, but at least we put it in perspective. Argentina has failed four times in my career, and it's a G20. How much does it take a G20 to go up to a G7 level so that Canada is the first G7? This is not something I'm proud of saying. I'm just telling you the mathematics of moving from a G20 nation up to a G7 nation. And I'll do everything I can so that Canada doesn't fail within the next couple of years. But Measure that as if Canada fails in the next five years, then the USA will likely fail, in my opinion, within 15 years of now, based on where Canada will fail. El Salvador will bail us all out, probably. Well, I say this isn't funny, but I'm married to a French Canadian. My wife is French Canadian. I'm English Canadian. So we have two official languages in Canada. And I, I, I say to her often, uh, we should learn Spanish. You know, I'm not kidding. Canadians should learn Spanish so that they can speak to El Salvador, uh, a country that's going to be way more prosperous on an individual basis than the uh, the, the per capita GDP of, uh, of the average Canadian. And that's not what I want to happen. I want El Salvador to prosper and I want Canada to prosper. And as an extension of that, I want the USA to prosper as well. Foss, for our audience, if you don't mind, define where you're going with the word failure here. Fill that in for us. A failed bond auction that requires the central bank 
to buy all the bonds that the international bond investor has decided not to essentially roll over, right? Yeah. So in a debt, in a debt balloon or a debt spiral, there's no debt that actually matures, right? It's not like you there's any bondholder that actually gets old money back. The only bondholder that gets money back is by the new bonds that fund the, the, the rolling or the maturity of the old bonds, plus the amount of the deficit that is required. So the government goes in and they spend over their means. You have to fund that deficit. But then there's the accumulated deficits of all the other years that need to get rolled over. Imagine Canadians who require international bond investors to show up at the auction. All of a sudden, the international bond investor doesn't show up. So the Bank of Canada rescues the bond auction and they print money to rescue the bond auction. And all of a sudden, the, it, the, the bondholders who still own bonds go, damn, I don't own anything here. I want to get out as well. And all of a sudden, the Bank of Canada has to refund all the accumulated deficits of their previous history. That's when you shovel currency to the side of the road like you've seen in Venezuela. And everyone will say, it can't happen in Canada. And I'm like, fuck off, you fucking clowns. Of course it can happen in Canada. It's the same mathematics that required or made it happen in Venezuela. And they'll say, you're a G7 nation. I'll say, well, it happened in a G20. And it's just yeah. pecking its way up the totem pole. They're gonna basically. You're, they're just gonna have to fully reserve the debt. I heard Groman on your show, Pish. This what was this last week? And he was saying, he was talking about a conversation he had with Jeff Booth at Bretton Woods on with you, and he's like, they're gonna have to fully reserve the debt. And they both kind of nodded their heads. And I think, I think Groman said he sees the Fed balance sheet going to like seventy or a hundred trillion. I mean, they really don't. When you zoom out, and who knows what the timeline's gonna be on this? But in my humble opinion, there's just What's the alternative here on a long-term time frame on the trajectory we're currently headed on? Yeah, I don't know that I uh, agree with Greg's timeline just because, um, and I don't, I don't want to try to like one-up or sound alarmist or anything like that. The thing I can't come up with an answer to is how will a spread of the magnitude that we're looking at in fixed income last five or 10 years from now when... At the core, I believe that what's causing that spread is a total breakdown in economic calculation because of the man manipulation that's taken us to this point. And the only thing that's going to keep things, quote unquote, stable from this point forward is a whole lot more manipulation, which should further accentuate the spread that we've, that we've already got, the negative spread that we've already got. So when I'm looking at that and I'm saying... Well, it doesn't matter if it's Canada, the USA, or you name it, country in the world right now. The best case scenario is a negative 500 basis point spread. So I just don't know how that can be sustained. I don't know how you could go another 10 years or 15 years with, with a spread like that. So, right? Like, how, how, how Preston, the only, I 100% agree with you. I guess all I'm saying is, I hope that we have 10 years so that we could in pla put in yeah. place the 
So hope is not a strategy. I, I hope we got 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I'm going to draw on Michael Saylor uh, from this because all fiats will fail over time. That's a proven fact. And the USA will be the last fiat to fail. And we just have to understand that there will be so much other pain elsewhere in the world outside of Canada, right? Like you're talking about the other 160 fiat currencies in the world that are likely to fail before even Canada fails, because then we hit the G7. And like it's happening, guys, because they are all based on the same mathematics. And the weakest ones fail first. And the solutions, hopefully for those countries, they take steps like El Salvador, where they're thinking outside the box, despite what the IMF is trying to, you know, tell them to do, which is not think outside the box. And despite what endowed professors are telling them not to do, which is think outside the box, they have to, because the mathematics indicate that they have to. And look, as a dad with three children, all of whom are under the age of 26, I really hope that my kids don't have to deal with this problem until they're in their middle ages. And at that point, there's a parallel system that we have put in place that will rescue it. Could it happen? Could it happen sooner? Man, it could happen tomorrow. We could honestly see tomorrow's FOMC meeting, which could be the most critical FOMC meeting since the great financial crisis, in my opinion. And I'm not an ambulance chaser and I'm not signaling this, but guys, all confidence can evaporate in a nanosecond. Snap. That's all it takes is an evaporation of confidence and the markets are done. So this is a really important point that, you know, studying all these great investors through the years and things like that, there's a huge important step that a person has to make when they become an investor. And number one is what you wish or hope will happen versus what you think will happen based on probabilities and, uh, Mm the analysis of the fundamental things that are driving whatever trend it is or whatever you think is going to play out that you're assigning those probabilities to. And so I'm with Greg hundred percent, dude, we need this, we need this to gradually take place to minimize the amount of pain that's, that's going to happen for a lot of people that are going to be just drastically dislocated through this, this emergence of this new financial system. Um, has that been how new financial systems have emerged in the past. It is not. No. They happen like absolute contagion and a feeding frenzy. Once everybody kind of has the lay of the land as to how things are going to shake out. You know, I, I think that once this thing starts to unravel, let me just paint a picture, right? Let's say that the spread is still 500 bips or it's, you know, seven, 700 bips or whatever in in a negative spread between the 10 year and what they're telling you inflation is. And let's say that we're at a point where Bitcoin's now 150 K or 200 K and you're, you're comparing and contrasting these things, right? right? And you're looking and you're looking at an equity market that's having these gyrations that the math that Greg was describing earlier, where now you're going 4%. But you can only get on the on the ten year. You can only get twenty five basis point return in nominal terms. Everywhere else in the world, it's even more negative in nominal terms than it already is. It doesn't take too much 
for people who can do the basics and the mathematics and see this thing over here that's literally just going straight up uh, on a linear chart to say, oh no, right. maybe those crazies, maybe those crazies were right. Right. And I think that there's going to be a lot of that it, it, within the next five years, you're going to, you're going to have people that are like, you can't unsee it. I think, um, a lot of people listening to this want to hear, want to be soothed a little bit after watching what just happened in Bitcoin over the last month or so. I guess my opinion on this is, um, I've been buying as much as I can because over the next five years, I think it's very, very obvious where this thing's going in the next six months. It's very non-obvious. It could go either direction. For sure. What happens tomorrow? What is said by Powell? What, how, you know, what color suit he's wearing? Any of these things could cause, I mean, he could say he could turn dovish tomorrow and this thing could absolutely ignite a rocket under itself or the opposite could happen and it might be at 15 K. But what I know is five years from now, things are going to be, I think very rationally in a much more secure place for Bitcoin. The people who, the people who are uncomfortable because this is down 50% in very short order, A, probably have way too big of a position size. Okay. And, and let me describe why I think they have too big of a position size. Plan B. If you don't, <laughs> if you, if you, if you fundamentally don't understand what you own, okay. And you don't understand the thesis behind why you own it, but you just bought it because somebody else told you to buy it. You most likely are going to sell it at the exact wrong time, and you're going to buy it at the exact wrong time mm -hmm. because you don't fundamentally understand what you own or why you're buying it. Okay. So for that person, let's say somebody told them to buy it. They bought it at, you know, whatever price they lose 50%. They're scared out of their mind because they didn't understand. They sell it. And then they don't get back into the market and buy this until it's at 500,000 because they realize that they made a mistake a year or three years or four years earlier. Okay. That person has done themselves a disservice because they had too big of a position size for their competence. Okay. So I would argue that a person who, let's say they allocated 1% of their portfolio to this, which based on my estimates of the math would protect them, their, whatever their net worth was, if their net worth was a hundred thousand and they bought $1,000 worth and it went down 50%. They don't even notice it in their portfolio, but they have the insurance policy to protect their net worth by owning 1%. And it matches their competence of what it is that they own, which isn't much as far as their competence, right? They don't really understand it. And as the price goes and, and gyrates, because that's what's going to happen, this is going to be an extreme volatility event. Just go look at any gold chart from 1920s Germany yes. to understand what, what we're up against, right? That's what this is going to be like. I would say that the person who bought the 1% and then slowly kept adding to it as they got more informed and got more comfortable and, st and actually started to understand what the heck's going on is in a much better position um, than a person who bought 30% position and they lost 50% and then sold it and then didn't get back in, if at all. And then you see these people. You see these people as like, like professional hedge fund managers, and I won't name names, that talk about how they were in it when it was $3. And now they're out here spinning narratives that you're, you're against America or you're against whatever, as the price is up 10,000% since they made their previous comment, right? 
We all know who these people are. So it happens to professional money managers. Can, you don't think it's going to happen to your friend who knows nothing about financial markets? Give me a break. Exactly, guys. If you the, the way I like to describe it is if Bitcoin goes to the price that I think it has its potential, you don't need to be 100% or even 50% or even 20% allocated to Bitcoin. You just have to have a position that's greater than zero. And how about you start with a position that's between one and 5%. And here's the funny thing. When someone owns one to 5% of Bitcoin in their portfolio, it's like they forget what the other 95% of their portfolio is invested <laughs> in, right? Preston, yeah. it's like they're focused so on this one little thing that should be your insurance policy. I promise you, I don't check my insurance policy of car insurance, home insurance, life insurance. I don't check that on a daily basis. De facto, you should not be checking the price of your Bitcoin if it's one to five to 10% of your portfolio. Now, there's lots of Bitcoin maxis out there who I love that are all in. And I'm not. I have never managed risk that way. I can never be 100% invested in anything because I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm a realist. There's very few things I'm 100% confident in. I own gold. I mean, you want to turn me off now. Okay, Foss owns gold. What is he, a retard? <laughs> no, I'm not. We just had Lawrence Lapard on. Keep going. Yeah. I love Larry. Like he's a great risk manager, right? He the information changed and he changed his thesis for uh his allocation to hard assets. This the the position size is the most important consideration as a risk manager. That is how you manage your risk. And I'm going to I'm going to throw it a positive scenario. You put 5% of your portfolio in Bitcoin at $1,000 and it went up 60 times. What are you supposed to do? You're actually supposed to trim some of that, okay? You take profits when it goes up 60-fold. Why? Because it's a volatile asset that you could actually reallocate if the price comes down. And if it doesn't, man, have you done well on your insurance policy? And you still have that insurance policy because I'm not saying you sell out of it. You just maintain a portion of your portfolio that reflects the risk appetite of you. And I take no, I'm not happy when I hear of people getting carved in markets. But as a trader, I love dysfunctional markets. It's my opinion we are, set, we are heading into dysfunctional markets for the next 18 months, which means 4% daily equity swings. What does that imply for Bitcoin? Well, you adjust it on a risk basis as the world adjusts it, not as Greg Foss adjusts it. And you can expect these types of swings in digital assets and Bitcoin as well, just because the machines, meaning the computer machines that trade one asset against the other, are going to tell you that's the way you're supposed to evaluate risk. Over time, I'll stick with Bitcoin as being the most perfect option I have ever seen. It's insurance. It's actually long volatility. It's your hedge against all your other short volatility assets that exist in the world. But man, oh man, that's a difficult education process. I am battling Bitcoin Twitter people every single day. And sometimes I just have to give up and say, 
I know over time the market will come to realize what a beautiful asset it is, but the reality is in the short term, the market is trading it in lockstep with the NASDAQ and you get the Gary Blacks of the world who say it's a long duration asset. And, you know, he's got hundreds of thousands of followers and he's got to be smart because he worked at Goldman Sachs. He's not that fucking smart. Okay. He's an equity fucking tool who has no clue what credit <laughs> markets are, yet he has a hundred thousand followers and he worked at Goldman Sachs. It's like saying it's like saying Jim Kramer actually understands how the world works. I mean, give me a break. Equity guys are the biggest fucking dummies in the room, and yet they're the only asset class that actually has any chance of meeting a pension hurdle right now so we are captive to the clowns in the room which are the equity <laughs> fools folks that concludes the first half of our discussion with preston pish and greg foss the second half of this discussion will come out next week as always if you're enjoying our show be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on youtube and if you have an extra minute go ahead and leave us a review you can follow us on Twitter, where we are active, at blue underscore collar BTC. And we invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind. Our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. Have a fantastic rest of your day, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.